At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Story 9 of Dubliners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Counterparts. The bell rang furiously, and when Miss Parker went to the tube, a furious voice called out in a piercing North of Ireland accent, "'Send Farrington here!' Miss Parker returned to her machine, saying to a man who was writing at a desk, "'Mr. Elaine wants you upstairs.' The man muttered, "'Blast him!' under his breath, and pushed back his chair to stand up. When he stood up he was tall and of great bulk. He had a hanging face, dark wine-coloured, with fair eyebrows and moustache. His eyes bulged forward slightly, and the whites of them were dirty. He lifted up the counter and, passing by the clients, went out of the office with a heavy step. He went heavily upstairs until he came to the second landing, where a door bore a brass plate with the inscription, Mr. Elaine. Here he halted, puffing with labour and vexation, and knocked. The shrill voice cried, "'Come in!' The man entered Mr. Elaine's room. Simultaneously Mr. Elaine, a little man wearing gold-rimmed glasses on a clean-shaven face, shot his head up over a pile of documents. The head itself was so pink and hairless it seemed like a large egg reposing on the papers. Mr. Elaine did not lose a moment. "'Farrington! What is the meaning of this? Why am I always to complain of you? May I ask you why you haven't made a copy of that contract between Bodley and Kerwin? I told you it must be ready by four o'clock. But Mr. Shelley said, sir. Mr. Shelley said, sir. Kindly attend to what I say, and not to what Mr. Shelley says, sir. You have always some excuse or another for shirking work. Let me tell you that if the contract is not copied before this evening, I'll lay the matter before Mr. Crosby. Do you hear me now? Yes, sir. Do you hear me now? Aye, and another little matter. I might as well be talking to the wall as talking to you. Understand, once for all, that you get a half hour for your lunch, and not an hour and a half. How many courses do you want, I'd like to know? Do you mind me now? Yes, sir. Mr. Lane bent his head again upon his pile of papers. The man stared fixedly at the polished skull which directed the affairs of Crosby and Elaine, gauging its fragility. A spasm of rage gripped his throat for a few moments, and then passed, leaving after it a sharp sensation of thirst. The man recognised the sensation and felt that he must have a good night's drinking. The middle of the month was past, and if he could get a copy done in time Mr. Elaine might give him an order on the cashier. He stood still, gazing fixedly at the head upon the pile of papers. Suddenly Mr. Elaine began to upset all the papers, searching for something. Then, as if he had been unaware of the man's presence till that moment, he shot up his head again, saying, "'Eh? Are you going to stand there all day?' Upon my word, Farrington, you take things easy. I was waiting to see. Very good. You needn't wait to see. Go downstairs and do your work. The man walked heavily towards the door, and as he went out of the room he heard Mr. Elaine cry after him that if the contract was not copied by evening Mr. Crosby would hear of the matter. 
He returned to his desk in the lower office and counted the sheets which remained to be copied. He took up his pen and dipped it in the ink, but he continued to stare stupidly at the last words he had written. In no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be. The evening was falling, and in a few minutes they would be lighting the gas. Then he could write. He felt that he must slake the thirst in his throat. He stood up from his desk and, lifting the counter as before, passed out of the office. As he was passing out, the chief clerk looked at him inquiringly. "'It's all right, Mr. Shelley,' said the man, pointing with his finger to indicate the objective of his journey. The chief clerk glanced at the hat-rack, but seeing the row complete offered no remark. As soon as he was on the landing the man pulled a shepherd's plaid cap out of his pocket, put it on his head, and ran quickly down the rickety stairs. From the street door he walked on furtively on the inner side of the path towards the corner, and all at once dived into a doorway. He was now safe in the dark snug of O'Neill's shop, and filling up the little window that looked into the bar with his inflamed face the colour of dark wine or dark meat, he called out, "'Here, Pat, give us a G.P. like a good fellow." The curate brought him a glass of plain porter. The man drank it at a gulp and asked for a caraway seed. He put his penny on the counter, and leaving the curate to grope for it in the gloom, retreated out of the snug as furtively as he had entered it. Darkness, accompanied by a thick fog, was gaining upon the dusk of February, and the lamps in Eustace Street had been lit. The man went up by the houses until he reached the door of the office, wondering whether he could finish his copy in time. On the stairs a moist, pungent odour of perfumes saluted his nose. Evidently Miss Delacour had come in while he was out at O'Neill's. He crammed his cap back again into his pocket and re-entered the office, assuming an air of absent-mindedness. "'Mr. Elaine has been calling for you,' said the chief clerk severely. "'Where were you?' The man glanced at the two clients who were standing at the counter, as if to intimate that their presence prevented him from answering. As the clients were both male, the chief clerk allowed himself a laugh. "'I know that game,' he said. Five times in one day is a little bit. Well, you better look sharp and get a copy of our correspondence in the Delacour case for Mr. Elaine. This address in the presence of the public, his run upstairs and the porter he had gulped down so hastily, confused the man, and as he sat down at his desk to get what was required he realised how hopeless was the task of finishing his copy of the contract before half-past five. The dark, damp night was coming and he longed to spend it in the bars, drinking with his friends amid the glare of gas and the clatter of glasses. He got out the Delacour correspondence and passed out of the office. He hoped Mr. Elaine would not discover that the last two letters were missing. The moist, pungent perfume lay all the way up to Mr. Elaine's room. Miss Delacour was a middle-aged woman of Jewish appearance. Mr. Elaine was said to be sweet on her, or on her money. She came to the office often and stayed a long time when she came. She was sitting beside his desk now in an aroma of perfumes, smoothing the handle of her umbrella and nodding the great black feather in her hat. Mr. Elaine had swivelled his chair round to see her and thrown his right foot jauntily upon his left knee. The man put the correspondence on the desk and bowed respectfully, but neither Mr. Elaine nor Miss Delacour took any notice of his bow. Mr. Elaine tapped a finger on the correspondence and then flicked it towards him as if to say, "'That's all right. You can go.' The man returned to the lower office and sat down again at his desk. He stared intently at the incomplete phrase. 
in no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be, and thought how strange it was that the last three words began with the same letter. The chief clerk began to hurry Miss Parker, saying she would never have the letters typed in time for post. The man listened to the clicking of the machine for a few minutes, and then set to work to finish his copy. But his head was not clear, and his mind wandered away to the glare and rattle of the public-house. It was a night for hot punches. He struggled on with his copy, but when the clock struck five he had still fourteen pages to write. Blast it! He couldn't finish it in time. He longed to execrate aloud, to bring his fist down on something violently. He was so enraged that he wrote Bernard Bernard instead of Bernard Bodley, and had to begin again on a clean sheet. He felt strong enough to clear out the whole office single-handed. His body ached to do something, to rush out and revel in violence. All the indignities of his life enraged him. Could he ask the cashier privately for an advance? No, the cashier was no good, no damn good. He wouldn't give an advance. He knew where he would meet the boys, Leonard and O'Halloran and Nosy Flynn. The barometer of his emotional nature was set for a spell of riot. His imagination had so abstracted him that his name was called twice before he answered. Mr. Elaine and Miss Delacour were standing outside the counter, and all the clerks had turned round in anticipation of something. The man got up from his desk. Mr. Elaine began a tirade of abuse, saying that two letters were missing. The man answered that he knew nothing about them, that he had made a faithful copy. The tirade continued. It was so bitter and violent that the man could hardly restrain his fist from descending upon the head of the mannequin before him. "'I know nothing about any other two letters,' he said stupidly. "'You know nothing.' "'Of course you know nothing,' said Mr. Elaine. "'Tell me,' he added, glancing first for approval to the lady beside him. "'Do you take me for a fool? Do you think me another fool?' The man glanced from the lady's face to the little egg-shaped head and back again, and, almost before he was aware of it, his tongue had found a felicitous moment. "'I don't think, sir,' he said, "'that that's a fair question to put to me.' There was a pause in the very breathing of the clerks. Everyone was astounded, the author of the witticism no less than his neighbours, and Miss Delacour, who was a stout amiable person, began to smile broadly. Mr. Elaine flushed to the hue of a wild rose and his mouth twitched with the dwarf's passion. He shook his fist in the man's face till it seemed to vibrate like the knob of some electric machine. "'You impertinent ruffian! You impertinent ruffian! I'll make short work of you. Wait till you see. You'll apologize to me for your impertinence, or you'll quit the office instanter. You'll quit this office, I'm telling you, or you'll apologize to me!' He stood in a doorway opposite the office, watching to see if the cashier would come out alone. All the clerks passed out, and finally the cashier came out with the chief clerk. It was no use trying to say a word to him when he was with the chief clerk. The man felt that his position was bad enough. He had been obliged to offer an abject apology to Mr. Elaine for his impertinence, but he knew what a hornet's nest the office would be for him. He could remember the way in which Mr. Elaine had hounded little Peak out of the office in order to make room for his own nephew. He felt savage and thirsty and revengeful annoyed with himself and with everyone else. Mr. Elaine would never give him an hour's rest. His life would be a hell to him. He had made a proper fool of himself this time. Could he not keep his tongue in his cheek? But they had never pulled together from the first, he and Mr. Elaine, 
ever since the day Mr. Elaine had overheard him mimicking his North of Ireland accent to amuse Higgins and Miss Parker. That had been the beginning of it. He might have tried Higgins for the money, but your Higgins never had anything for himself. A man with two establishments to keep up, of course he couldn't. He felt his great body again aching for the comfort of the public house. The fog had begun to chill him, and he wondered could he touch Pat and O'Neill's. He could not touch him for more than a bob, and a bob was no use. Yet he must get money somewhere or other. He had spent his last penny for the G.P., and soon it would be too late for getting money anywhere. Suddenly, as he was fingering his watch-chain, he thought of Terry Kelly's pawn-office in Fleet Street. That was the dart. Why didn't he think of it sooner? He went through the narrow alley of Temple Bar quickly, muttering to himself that they could all go to hell because he was going to have a good night of it. The clerk and Terry Kelly's set a crown, but the consigner held out for six shillings, and in the end the six shillings was allowed him literally. He came out of the pawn-office joyfully, making a little cylinder of the coins between his thumb and fingers. In Westmoreland Street the footpaths were crowded with young men and women returning from business, and ragged urchins ran here and there, yelling out the names of the evening editions. The man passed through the crowd, looking on the spectacle generally with proud satisfaction and staring masterfully at the office girls. His head was full of the noises of tram-gongs and swishing trolleys, and his nose already sniffed the curling fumes of punch. As he walked on he preconsidered the terms in which he would narrate the incident to the boys. So I just looked at him, coolly, you know, and looked at her. Then I looked back at him again, taking my time, you know. I don't think that's a fair question to put to me, says I. Nosy Flynn was sitting up in his usual corner of Davy Burns, and when he heard the story he stood Farrington a half one, saying it was as smart a thing as ever he heard. Farrington stood a drink in his turn. After a while O'Halloran and Paddy Leonard came in, and the story was repeated to them. O'Halloran stood tailors of malt, hot all round and told the story of the retort he had made to the chief clerk when he was in Callan's of Founza Street, but as the retort was after the manner of the liberal shepherds in the Ecologues, he had to admit that it was not as clever as Farrington's retort. At this Farrington told the boys to polish off that and have another. Just as they were naming their poisons, who should come in but Higgins? Of course he had to join in with the others. The men asked him to give his version of it, and he did so with great vivacity for the sight of five small hot whiskies was very exhilarating. Everyone roared laughing when he showed the way in which Mr. Elaine shook his fist in Farrington's face. Then he imitated Farrington, saying, "'And here was my nabs, as cool as you please!' while Farrington looked at the company out of his heavy, dirty eyes, smiling and at times drawing forth stray drops of liquor from his moustache with the aid of his lower lip. When that round was over there was a pause. O'Halloran had money, but neither of the other two seemed to have any, so the whole party left the shop somewhat regretfully. At the corner of Duke Street Higgins and Nosy Flynn bevelled off to the left, while the other three turned back towards the city. Rain was drizzling down on the cold streets, and when they reached the ballast office Farrington suggested the Scotch House. The bar was full of men and loud with the noise of tongues and glasses. The three men pushed past the whining match-sellers at the door and formed a little party at the corner of the counter. They began to exchange stories. Leonard introduced them to a young fellow named Weathers, who was performing at the Tivoli as an acrobat and knockabout artiste. 
Farrington stood a drink all round. Weather said he would take a small Irish and a Polinaris. Farrington, who had definite notions of what was what, asked the boys would they have an Apollinaris too, but the boys told Tim to make theirs hot. The talk became theatrical. O'Halloran stood around, and then Farrington stood another round, Weathers protesting that the hospitality was too Irish. He promised to get them in behind the scenes and introduce them to some nice girls. O'Halloran said that he and Leonard would go, but that Farrington wouldn't go because he was a married man and Farrington's heavy, dirty eyes leered at the company, in token that he understood he was being chaffed. Weathers made them all have just one little tincture at his expense, and promised to meet them later on at Mulligan's in Poolbeg Street. When the Scotch house closed they went round to Mulligan's. They went into the parlour at the back, and O'Halloran ordered small hot specials all round. They were all beginning to feel mellow. Farrington was just standing another round when Weathers came back. Much to Farrington's relief he drank a glass of bitter this time. Funds were getting low, but they had enough to keep them going. Presently two young women with big hats and a young man in a check suit came in and sat at a table close by. Weathers saluted them and told the company that they were out of the Tivoli. Farrington's eyes wandered at every moment in the direction of one of the young women. There was something striking in her appearance. An immense scarf of peacock-blue muslin was round round her hat and knotted in a great bow under her chin, and she wore bright yellow gloves reaching to the elbow. Farrington gazed admiringly at the plump arm, which she moved very often and with much grace, and when, after a little time, she answered his gaze, he admired still more her large dark brown eyes. The oblique staring expression in them fascinated him. She glanced at him once or twice and when the party was leaving the room she brushed against his chair and said, "'Oh, pardon,' in a London accent. He watched her leave the room in the hope that she would look back at him, but he was disappointed. He cursed his want of money and cursed all the rounds he had stood, particularly all the whiskies and Apollinaris which he had stood to weathers. If there was one thing he hated it was a sponge. He was so angry that he lost count of the conversation of his friends. When Paddy Leonard called him, he found that they were talking about feats of strength. Weathers was showing his biceps muscle to the company and boasting so much that the other two had called on Farrington to uphold the national honour. Farrington pulled up his sleeve accordingly and showed his biceps muscle to the company. The two arms were examined and compared, and finally it was agreed to have a trial of strength. The table was cleared and the two men rested their elbows on it, clasping hands. When Paddy Leonard said go, each was to try to bring down the other's hand on to the table. Farrington looked very serious and determined. The trial began. After about thirty seconds Weathers brought his opponent's hand slowly down onto the table. Farrington's dark wine-coloured face flushed darker still with anger and humiliation at having been defeated by such a stripling. "'You're not to put the weight of your body behind it. Play fair,' he said. "'Who's not playing fair?' said the other. Come on again. The two best out of three. The trial began again. The veins stood out on Farrington's forehead, and the pallor of Weathers' complexion changed to peony. The hands and arms trembled under the stress. After a long struggle Weathers again brought his opponent's hand slowly on to the table. There was a murmur of applause from the spectators. The curate, who was standing beside the table, nodded his red head towards the victor, and said with stupid familiarity, 
Ah, that's the knack. What the hell do you know about it? said Farrington fiercely, turning on the man. What do you put in your gab for? Ch -ch -ch, said O'Halloran, observing the violent expression on Farrington's face. Pony up, boys. We'll have just one little smahan more, and then we'll be off. A very sullen-faced man stood at the corner of O'Connell Bridge, waiting for the little Sandymount tram to take him home. He was full of smouldering anger and revengefulness. He felt humiliated and discontented. He did not even feel drunk, and he had only twopence in his pocket. He cursed everything. He had done for himself at the office, pawned his watch, spent all his money, and he had not even got drunk. He began to feel thirsty again and longed to be back again in the hot, reeking public house. He had lost his reputation as a strong man, having been defeated twice by a mere boy. His heart swelled with fury, and when he thought of the woman in the big hat who had brushed against him and said pardon, his fury nearly choked him. His tram let him down at Shelburne Road, and he steered his great body along the shadow of the wall of the barracks. He loathed returning to his home. When he went in by the side door he found the kitchen empty and the kitchen fire nearly out. He bawled upstairs, Ada! Ada! His wife was a little sharp-faced woman who bullied her husband when he was sober and was bullied by him when he was drunk. They had five children. A little boy came running down the stairs. Who is that? said the man peering through the darkness. Me, pa. Who are you? Charlie? No, pa. Tom. Where's your mother? She's out at the chapel. That's right. Did she think of leaving any dinner for me? Yes, Powie. Light the lamp. What do you mean by having the place in darkness? Are the other children in bed? The man sat down heavily on one of the chairs while the little boy lit the lamp. He began to mimic his son's flat accent, saying half to himself, At the chapel. At the chapel, if you please. When the lamp was lit he banged his fist on the table and shouted, What's for my dinner? I'm going to cook it, Pa," said the little boy. The man jumped up furiously and pointed to the fire. On that fire? You let the fire out? By God, I'll teach you to do that again. He took a step to the door and seized the walking stick which was standing behind it. I'll teach you to let the fire out, he said, rolling up his sleeve in order to give his arm free play. The little boy cried, Oh, Pa! and ran whimpering round the table. But the man followed him and caught him by the coat. The little boy looked wildly about him, but seeing no way of escape fell upon his knees. "'Now you let the fire out the next time,' said the man, striking at him vigorously with a stick. "'Take that, you little whelp!' The boy uttered a squeal of pain as the stick cut his thigh. He clasped his hands together in the air, and his voice shook with fright. "'Oh, Pa!' he cried. "'Don't beat me, Pa! And I'll, oh, I'll say a Hail Mary for you!' I'll say a Hail Mary for you, Pa, if you don't beat me. I'll say a Hail Mary. End of Story 9 Counterparts Story 10 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clay The matron had given her leave to go out as soon as the women's tea was over and Maria looked forward to her evening out. The kitchen was spick and span. The cook said you could see yourself in the big copper boilers. The fire was nice and bright, and on one of the side-tables were four very big barm bracks. 
These barn bracks seemed uncut, but if you went closer you could see that they had been cut into long, thick, even slices, and were ready to be handed round at tea. Maria had cut them herself. Maria was a very, very small person indeed, but she had a very long nose and a very long chin. She talked a little through her nose, always soothingly. "'Yes, my dear,' and "'No, my dear.' She was always sent for when the women quarrelled over their tubs, and always succeeded in making peace. One day the matron had said to her, "'Maria, you are a veritable peacemaker.' And the sub-matron and two of the board ladies had heard the compliment. And Ginger Mooney was always saying what she wouldn't do to the dummy who had charge of the irons if it wasn't for Maria. Everyone was so fond of Maria. The women would have their tea at six o'clock, and she would be able to get away before seven. From Ballsbridge to the Pillar, twenty minutes. From the Pillar to Drumcondra, twenty minutes, and twenty minutes to buy the things. She would be there before eight. She took out her purse with the silver clasps and read again the words, A Present from Belfast. She was very fond of that purse, because Joe had brought it to her five years before when he and Alfie had gone to Belfast on a Whit Monday trip. In the purse were two half-crowns and some coppers. She would have five shillings clear after paying tram-fare. What a nice evening they would have, all the children singing. Only she hoped that Joe wouldn't come in drunk. He was so different when he took any drink. Often he had wanted her to go and live with them, but she would have felt herself in the way, though Joe's wife was ever so nice with her and she had become accustomed to the life of the laundry. Joe was a good fellow. She had nursed him, and Alfie too, and Joe used often to say, Mamma is Mamma, but Maria is my proper mother. After the break-up at home the boys had got her that position in the Dublin by Lamplight laundry, and she liked it. She used to have such a bad opinion of Protestants, but now she thought they were very nice people a little quiet and serious, but still very nice people to live with. Then she had her plants in the conservatory, and she liked looking after them. She had lovely ferns and wax plants, and whenever anyone came to visit her she always gave the visitor one or two slips from her conservatory. There was one thing she didn't like, and that was the tracks on the walls, but the matron was such a nice person to deal with, so genteel. When the cook told her everything was ready she went into the women's room and began to pull the big bell. In a few minutes the women began to come in by twos and threes, wiping their steaming hands in their petticoats and pulling down the sleeves of their blouses over their red steaming arms. They settled down before their huge mugs, which the cook and the dummy filled up with hot tea, already mixed with milk and sugar in huge tin cans. Maria superintended the distribution of the barmbrack and saw that every woman got her four slices. There was a great deal of laughing and joking during the meal. Lizzie Fleming said Maria was sure to get the ring, and though Fleming had said that for so many hollow eves, Maria had to laugh and say she didn't want any ring or man either, and when she laughed her grey-green eyes sparkled with disappointed shyness and the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. Then Ginger Mooney lifted her mug of tea and proposed Maria's health, while all the other women clattered with their mugs on the table, and she said she was sorry she hadn't a sup of porter to drink it in. And Maria laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. 
until her minute body nearly shook itself asunder because she knew that Mooney meant well, though of course she had the notions of a common woman. But wasn't Maria glad when the women had finished their tea, and the cook and the dummy had begun to clear away the tea-things? She went into her little bedroom, and remembering that the next morning was a mass morning, changed the hand of the alarm from seven to six. Then she took off her working skirt and her house-boots, and laid her best skirt out on the bed and her tiny dress-boots beside the foot of the bed. She changed her blouse, too, and, as she stood before the mirror, she thought of how she used to dress for Mass on Sunday morning when she was a young girl, and she looked with quaint affection at the diminutive body which she had so often adorned. In spite of its years she found it a nice, tidy little body. When she got outside the streets were shining with rain, and she was glad of her old brown waterproof. The tram was full and she had to sit on the little stool at the end of the car, facing all the people, with her toes barely touching the floor. She arranged in her mind all she was going to do, and thought how much better it was to be independent and to have your own money in your pocket. She hoped they would have a nice evening. She was sure they would, but she could not help thinking what a pity it was Alfie and Joe were not speaking. They were always falling out now but when they were boys together they used to be the best of friends. But such was life. She got out of her tram at the pillar and ferreted her way quickly among the crowds. She went into Downes's cake-shop, but the shop was so full of people that it was a long time before she could get herself attended to. She bought a dozen of mixed penny cakes and at last came out of the shop laden with a big bag. Then she thought what else would she buy? She wanted to buy something really nice. They would be sure to have plenty of apples and nuts. It was hard to know what to buy, and all she could think of was cake. She decided to buy some plum cake, but Downes's plum cake had not enough almond icing on top of it, so she went over to a shop in Henry Street. Here she was a long time in suiting herself, and the stylish young lady behind the counter, who was evidently a little annoyed by her, asked her was it a wedding cake she wanted to buy. That made Maria blush and smile at the young lady. But the young lady took it all very seriously, and finally cut a thick slice of plum-cake, parcelled it up, and said, Two and four, please. She thought she would have to stand in the Drumcondra tram, because none of the young men seemed to notice her, but an elderly gentleman made room for her. He was a stout gentleman, and he wore a brown, hard hat. He had a square red face and a greyish moustache. Maria thought he was a colonel-looking gentleman, and she reflected how much more polite he was than the young men who simply stared straight before them. The gentleman began to chat with her about Halloween and the rainy weather. He supposed the bag was full of good things for the little ones, and said it was only right that the youngsters should enjoy themselves while they were young. Maria agreed with him, and favoured him with demure nods and hems. He was very nice with her and when she was getting out at the canal bridge she thanked him and bowed, and he bowed to her and raised his hat and smiled agreeably. And while she was going up along the terrace, bending her tiny head under the rain, she thought how easy it was to know a gentleman, even when he has a drop taken. Everybody said, Oh, here's Maria, when she came to Joe's house. Joe was there, having come home from business, and all the children had their Sunday dresses on. There were two big girls in from next door, 
and games were going on. Maria gave the bag of cakes to the eldest boy, Alfie, to divide, and Mrs. Donnelly said it was too good of her to bring such a big bag of cakes, and made all the children say, "'Thanks, Maria!' But Maria said she had brought something special for Papa and Mama, something they would be sure to like, and she began to look for her plum-cake. She tried in Downs's bag, and then in the pockets of her waterproof, and then on the hall-stand, but nowhere could she find it. Then she asked all the children had any of them eaten it, by mistake of course, but the children all said no, and looked as if they did not like to eat cakes if they were to be accused of stealing. Everybody had a solution for the mystery, and Mrs. Donnelly said it was plain that Maria had left it behind her in the tram. Maria, remembering how confused the gentleman with the greyish moustache had made her, coloured with shame and vexation and disappointment. At the thought of the failure of her little surprise, and of the two and fourpence she had thrown away for nothing, she nearly cried outright. But Joe said it didn't matter, and made her sit down by the fire. He was very nice with her. He told her all that went on in his office, repeating for her a smart answer which he had made to the manager. Maria did not understand why Joe laughed so much over the answer he had made, but she said that the manager must have been a very overbearing person to deal with. Joe said he wasn't so bad when you knew how to take him, that he was a decent sort so long as you didn't rub him the wrong way. Mrs. Donnelly played the piano for the children, and they danced and sang. Then the two next-door girls handed round the nuts. Nobody could find the nutcrackers, and Joe was nearly getting cross over it, and asked how did they expect Maria to crack nuts without a nutcracker. But Maria said she didn't like nuts, and that they weren't to bother about her. Then Joe asked would she take a bottle of stout, and Mrs. Donnelly said there was port wine too in the house if she would prefer that. Maria said she would rather they didn't ask her to take anything, but Joe insisted. So Maria let him have his way and they sat by the fire talking over old times, and Maria thought she would put in a good word for Alfie. But Joe cried that God might strike him stone dead if ever he spoke a word to his brother again, and Maria said she was sorry she had mentioned the matter. Mrs. Donnelly told her husband it was a great shame for him to speak that way of his own flesh and blood, but Joe said that Alfie was no brother of his, and there was nearly being a row on the head of it. But Joe said he would not lose his temper on account of the night it was, and asked his wife to open some more stout. The two next-door girls had arranged some Halloween games, and soon everything was merry again. Maria was delighted to see the children so merry, and Joe and his wife in such good spirits. The next-door girls put some saucers on the table, and then led the children up to the table blindfold. One got the prayer-book, and the other three got the water. And when one of the next-door girls got the ring, Mrs. Donnelly shook her finger at the blushing girl as much as to say, "'Oh, I know all about it!' They insisted then on blindfolding Maria and leading her up to the table to see what she would get, and while they were putting on the bandage Maria laughed and laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. They led her up to the table amid laughing and joking and she put her hand out in the air as she was told to do. She moved her hand about here and there in the air, and descended on one of the saucers. She felt a soft wet substance with her fingers, and was surprised that nobody spoke or took off her bandage. There was a pause for a few seconds, 
and then a great deal of scuffling and whispering. Somebody said something about the garden, and at last Mrs. Donnelly said something very cross to one of the next-door girls, and told her to throw it out at once. That was no play. Maria understood that it was wrong that time, and so she had to do it over again, and this time she got the prayer-book. After that Mrs. Donnelly played Miss MacLeod's reel for the children, and Joe made Maria take a glass of wine. Soon they were all quite merry again, and Mrs. Donnelly said Maria would enter a convent before the year was out because she had got the prayer-book. Maria had never seen Joe so nice to her as he was that night, so full of pleasant talk and reminiscences. She said they were all very good to her. At last the children grew tired and sleepy, and Joe asked Maria would she not sing some little song before she went, one of the old songs. Mrs. Donnelly said, Do, please, Maria. And so Maria had to get up and stand beside the piano. Mrs. Donnelly bade the children be quiet and listen to Maria's song. Then she played the prelude and said, Now, Maria. And Maria, blushing very much, began to sing in a tiny, quivering voice. She sang, I dreamt that I dwelt, and when she came to the second verse she sang again. I dreamt that I dwelt in marble halls, with vassals and serfs at my side. And of all who assembled within those walls, that I was the hope and the pride. I had riches too great to count, could boast of a high ancestral name. But I also dreamt, which pleased me most, that you loved me still the same." But no one tried to show her her mistake, and when she had ended her song Joe was very much moved. He said that there was no time like the long ago, and no music for him like poor old Balf, whatever other people might say, and his eyes filled up so much with tears that he could not find what he was looking for and in the end he had to ask his wife to tell him where the corkscrew was. End of Story 10 Clay Story 11 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Painful Case Mr. James Duffy lived in Chapel Lizard because he wished to live as far as possible from the city of which he was a citizen and because he found all the other suburbs of Dublin mean, modern, and pretentious. He lived in an old sombre house, and from his windows he could look into the disused distillery or upwards along the shallow river on which Dublin is built. The lofty walls of his uncarpeted room were free from pictures. He had himself bought every article of furniture in the room—a black iron bedstead, an iron washstand, four cane chairs, a clothes-rack, a coal-scuttle, a fender and irons, and a square table on which lay a double desk. A bookcase had been made in an alcove by means of shelves of white wood. The bed was clothed in white bedclothes, and a black and scarlet rug covered the foot. A little hand-mirror hung above the washstand, and during the day a white-shaded lamp stood as the sole ornament of the mantelpiece. The books on the white wooden shelves were arranged from below upwards according to bulk. A complete Wordsworth stood at one end of the lowest shelf, and a copy of the Maynooth Catechism, sewn into the cloth cover of a notebook, stood at one end of the top shelf. Writing materials were always on the desk. 
In the desk lay a manuscript translation of Hoffmann's Michael Kramer, the stage directions of which were written in purple ink, and a little sheaf of papers held together by a brass pin. In these sheets a sentence was inscribed from time to time, and in an ironical moment the headline of an advertisement for bile beans had been pasted on to the first sheet. On lifting the lid of the desk a faint fragrance escaped, the fragrance of new cedarwood pencils, or of a bottle of gum, or of an overripe apple which might have been left there and forgotten. Mr. Duffy abhorred anything which betokened physical or mental disorder. A medieval doctor would have called him Saturnine. His face, which carried the entire tale of his years, was of the brown tint of Dublin streets. On his long and rather large head grew dry black hair, and a tawny moustache did not quite cover an unamiable mouth. His cheekbones also gave his face a harsh character, but there was no harshness in the eyes which, looking at the world from under their tawny eyebrows, gave the impression of a man ever alert to greet a redeeming instinct in others, but often disappointed. He lived at a little distance from his body, regarding his own acts with doubtful side-glances. He had an odd autobiographical habit which led him to compose in his mind from time to time a short sentence about himself containing a subject in the third person and a predicate in the past tense. He never gave alms to beggars and walked firmly, carrying a stout hazel. He had been for many years cashier of a private bank in Bagot Street. Every morning he came in from Chapel Isid by tram. At midday he went to Dan Burke's and took his lunch, a bottle of lager beer and a small trayful of arrowroot biscuits. At four o'clock he was set free. He dined in an eating-house in George's Street, where he felt himself safe from the society of Dublin's gilded youth, and where there was a certain plain honesty in the bill of fare. His evenings were spent either before his landlady's piano or roaming about the outskirts of the city. His liking for Mozart's music brought him sometimes to an opera or a concert. These were the only dissipations of his life. He had neither companions nor friends, church nor creed. He lived his spiritual life without any communion with others, visiting his relatives at Christmas and escorting them to the cemetery when they died. He performed these two social duties for old dignity's sake, but conceded nothing further to the conventions which regulate the civic life. He allowed himself to think that in certain circumstances he would rob his bank, but as these circumstances never arose his life rolled out evenly, an adventureless tale. One evening he found himself sitting beside two ladies in the rotunda. The house, thinly peopled and silent, gave distressing prophecy of failure. The lady who sat next to him looked round at the deserted house once or twice and then said, "'What a pity there is such a poor house to-night! It is so hard on people to have to sing to empty benches!' He took the remark as an invitation to talk. He was surprised that she seemed so little awkward. While they talked he tried to fix her permanently in his memory. When he learned that the young girl beside her was her daughter he judged her to be a year or so younger than himself. Her face, which must have been handsome, had remained intelligent. It was an oval face with strongly marked features. The eyes were very dark blue and steady. Their gaze began with a defiant note but was confused by what seemed a deliberate swoon of the pupil into the iris, revealing for an instant a temperament of great sensibility. 
The pupil reasserted itself quickly. This half-disclosed nature fell again under the reign of prudence, and her astrakhan jacket, moulding a bosom of a certain fullness, struck the note of defiance more definitely. He met her again a few weeks afterwards at a concert in Earlsford Terrace, and seized the moments when her daughter's attention was diverted to become intimate. She alluded once or twice to her husband, but her tone was not such as to make the allusion a warning. Her name was Mrs. Sinico. Her husband's great-great-grandfather had come from Leghorn. Her husband was captain of a mercantile boat plying between Dublin and Holland, and they had one child. Meeting her a third time by accident, he found courage to make an appointment. She came. This was the first of many meetings. They met always in the evening, and chose the most quiet quarters for their walks together. Mr. Duffy, however, had a distaste for underhand ways, and finding that they were compelled to meet stealthily, he forced her to ask him to her house. Captain Sinico encouraged his visits, thinking that his daughter's hand was in question. He had dismissed his wife so sincerely from his gallery of pleasures that he did not suspect that anyone else would take an interest in her. As the husband was often away, and the daughter out giving music lessons, Mr. Duffy had many opportunities of enjoying the lady's society. Neither he nor she had had any such adventure before, and neither was conscious of any incongruity. Little by little he entangled his thoughts with hers. He lent her books, provided her with ideas, shared his intellectual life with her. She listened to all. Sometimes, in return for his theories, she gave out some fact of her own life. With almost maternal solicitude she urged him to let his nature open to the full. She became his confessor. He told her that for some time he had assisted at the meetings of an Irish Socialist Party, where he had felt himself a unique figure amidst a score of sober workmen in a garret lit by an inefficient oil-lamp. When the party had divided into three sections, each under its own leader and in its own garret, he had discontinued his attendances. The workmen's discussions, he said, were too timorous. The interest they took in the question of wages was inordinate. He felt that they were hard-featured realists, and that they resented an exactitude which was the produce of a leisure not within their reach. No social revolution, he told her, would be likely to strike Dublin for some centuries. She asked him why he did not write out his thoughts. For what? he asked her with careful scorn. To compete with phrasemongers, incapable of thinking consecutively for sixty seconds? To submit himself to the criticisms of an obtuse middle class, which entrusted its morality to policemen and its fine arts to impresarios? He went often to her little cottage outside Dublin. Often they spent their evenings alone. Little by little, as their thoughts entangled, they spoke of subjects less remote. Her companionship was like a warm soil about an exotic. Many times she allowed the dark to fall upon them, refraining from lighting the lamp. The dark, discreet room, their isolation, the music that still vibrated in their ears, united them. This union exalted him, wore away the rough edges of his character, emotionalized his mental life. Sometimes he caught himself listening to the sound of his own voice. He thought that in her eyes he would ascend to an angelical stature and, as he attached the fervent nature of his companion more and more closely to him, he heard the strange impersonal voice which he recognized as his own, insisting on the soul's incurable loneliness. 
we cannot give ourselves, it said. We are our own. The end of these discourses was that one night during which she had shown every sign of unusual excitement, Mrs. Sinico caught up his hand passionately and pressed it to her cheek. Mr. Duffy was very much surprised. Her interpretation of his words disillusioned him. He did not visit her for a week. Then he wrote to her, asking her to meet him. As he did not wish their last interview to be troubled by the influence of their ruined confessional, they met in a little cake-shop near the park-gate. It was cold autumn weather, but in spite of the cold they wandered up and down the roads of the park for nearly three hours. They agreed to break off their intercourse. Every bond, he said, is a bond to sorrow. When they came out of the park they walked in silence towards the tram. But here she began to tremble so violently that, fearing another collapse on her part, he bade her good-bye quickly and left her. A few days later he received a parcel containing his books and music. Four years passed. Mr. Duffy returned to his even way of life. His room still bore witness of the orderliness of his mind. Some new pieces of music encumbered the music-stand in the lower room, and on his shelves stood two volumes by Nietzsche. Thus spake Zarathustra and the gay science. He wrote seldom in the sheaf of papers which lay in his desk. One of his sentences, written two months after his last interview with Mrs. Sinico, read, Love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse, and friendship between man and woman is impossible because there must be sexual intercourse. He kept away from concerts lest he should meet her. His father died. The junior partner of the bank retired, and still every morning he went into the city by tram, and every evening walked home from the city after having dined moderately in George's Street and read the evening paper for dessert. One evening, as he was about to put a morsel of corned beef and cabbage into his mouth, his hand stopped. His eyes fixed themselves on a paragraph in the evening paper which he had propped against the water carafe. He replaced the morsel of food on his plate and read the paragraph attentively. Then he drank a glass of water, pushed his plate to one side, doubled the paper down before him between his elbows, and read the paragraph over and over again. The cabbage began to deposit a cold white grease on his plate. The girl came over to him to ask was his dinner not properly cooked. He said it was very good, and ate a few mouthfuls of it with difficulty. Then he paid his bill and went out. He walked along quickly through the November twilight, his stout hazel stick striking the ground regularly, the fringe of the buff mail peeping out of a side-pocket of his tight reefer overcoat. On the lonely road which leads from the parquet to Chapel Lizard, he slackened his pace. His stick struck the ground less emphatically, and his breath, issuing irregularly, almost with a sighing sound, condensed in the wintry air. When he reached his house he went up at once to his bedroom, and taking the paper from his pocket, read the paragraph again by the failing light of the window. He read it not aloud, but moving his lips as a priest does when he reads the prayers secreto. This was the paragraph. Death of a lady at Sydney Parade. A painful case. Today at the City of Dublin Hospital the deputy coroner, in the absence of Mr. Laverett, held an inquest on the body of Mrs. Emily Sinico, aged forty-three years, who was killed at Sydney Parade Station yesterday evening. The evidence showed that the deceased lady, while attempting to cross the line, was knocked down by the engine of the ten o'clock slow train from Kingstown, 
thereby sustaining injuries of the head and right side, which led to her death. James Lennon, driver of the engine, stated that he had been in the employment of the railway company for fifteen years. On hearing the guard's whistle he set the train in motion, and a second or two afterwards brought it to rest in response to loud cries. The train was going slowly. P. Dunn, railway porter, stated that as the train was about to start he observed a woman attempting to cross the lines. He ran towards her and shouted, but before he could reach her she was caught by the buffer of the engine and fell to the ground. A juror. You saw the lady fall? Witness. Yes. Police Sergeant Crowley deposed that when he arrived he found the deceased lying on the platform apparently dead. He had the body taken to the waiting-room pending the arrival of the ambulance. Constable 57E corroborated. Dr. Halpin, assistant house-surgeon of the City of Dublin Hospital, stated that the deceased had two lower ribs fractured and had sustained severe contusions of the right shoulder. The right side of the head had been injured in the fall. The injuries were not sufficient to have caused death in a normal person. Death, in his opinion, had been probably due to shock and sudden failure of the heart's action. Mr. H. B. Patterson Finlay, on behalf of the railway company, expressed his deep regret at the accident. The company had always taken every precaution to prevent people crossing the lines except by the bridges, both by placing notices in every station and by the use of patent spring gates at level crossings. The deceased had been in the habit of crossing the lines late at night from platform to platform, and in view of certain other circumstances of the case he did not think the railway officials were to blame. Captain Sinico of Leoville, Sydney Parade, husband of the deceased, also gave evidence. He stated that the deceased was his wife. He was not in Dublin at the time of the accident, as he had arrived only that morning from Rotterdam. They had been married for twenty-two years and had lived happily until about two years ago, when his wife began to be rather intemperate in her habits. Miss Mary Sinico said that of late her mother had been in the habit of going out at night to buy spirits. She, witness, had often tried to reason with her mother and had induced her to join a league. She was not at home until an hour after the accident. The jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence and exonerated Lennon from all blame. The deputy coroner said it was a most painful case and expressed great sympathy with Captain Sinico and his daughter. He urged the railway company to take strong measures to prevent the possibility of similar accidents in the future. No blame attached to anyone. Mr. Duffy raised his eyes from the paper and gazed out of his window on the cheerless evening landscape. The river lay quiet beside the empty distillery, and from time to time a light appeared in some house on the Lucan Road. What an end! The whole narrative of her death revolted him, and it revolted him to think that he had ever spoken to her of what he held sacred. The threadbare phrases, the inane expressions of sympathy, the cautious words of a reporter won over to conceal the details of a commonplace vulgar death attacked his stomach. Not merely had she degraded herself, she had degraded him. He saw the squalid tract of her vice, miserable and malodorous, his soul's companion. He thought of the hobbling wretches whom he had seen carrying cans and bottles to be filled by the barman. Just God! What an end! Evidently she had been unfit to live without any strength of purpose, an easy prey to habits, 
one of the wrecks on which civilization has been reared. But that she could have sunk so low! Was it possible he had deceived himself so utterly about her? He remembered her outburst of that night and interpreted it in a harsher sense than he had ever done. He had no difficulty now in approving of the course he had taken. As the light failed and his memory began to wander he thought her hand touched his. The shock which had first attacked his stomach was now attacking his nerves. He put on his overcoat and hat quickly and went out. The cold air met him on the threshold. It crept into the sleeves of his coat. When he came to the public-house at Chapelizard Bridge he went in and ordered a hot punch. The proprietor served him obsequiously but did not venture to talk. There were five or six working men in the shop discussing the value of a gentleman's estate in County Kildare. They drank at intervals from their huge pint tumblers and smoked, spitting often on the floor and sometimes dragging the sawdust over their spits with their heavy boots. Mr. Duffy sat on a stool and gazed at them, without seeing or hearing them. After a while they went out and he called for another punch. He sat a long time over it. The shop was very quiet. The proprietor sprawled on the counter reading the Herald and yawning. Now and again a tram was heard swishing along the lonely road outside. As he sat there living over his life with her and evoking alternately the two images in which he now conceived her, he realized that she was dead, that she had ceased to exist, that she had become a memory. He began to feel ill at ease. He asked himself what else could he have done? He could not have carried on a comedy of deception with her. He could not have lived with her openly. He had done what seemed to him best. How was he to blame? Now that she was gone he understood how lonely her life must have been, sitting night after night alone in that room. His life would be lonely too until he too died, ceased to exist, became a memory, if anyone remembered him. It was after nine o'clock when he left the shop. The night was cold and gloomy. He entered the park by the first gate and walked along under the gaunt trees. He walked through the bleak alleys where they had walked four years before. She seemed to be near him in the darkness. At moments he seemed to feel her voice touch his ear, her hand touch his. He stood still to listen. Why had he withheld life from her? Why had he sentenced her to death? He felt his moral nature falling to pieces. When he gained the crest of the magazine hill he halted and looked along the river towards Dublin, the lights of which burned redly and hospitably in the cold night. He looked down the slope and at the base in the shadow of the wall of the park he saw some human figures lying. Those venal and furtive loves filled him with despair. He gnawed the rectitude of his life. He felt that he had been outcast from life's feast. One human being had seemed to love him and he had denied her life and happiness. He had sentenced her to ignominy, a death of shame. He knew that the prostrate creatures down by the wall were watching him and wished him gone. No one wanted him. He was outcast from life's feast. He turned his eyes to the grey gleaming river winding along towards Dublin. Beyond the river he saw a goods train winding out of Kingsbridge station, like a worm with a fiery head winding through the darkness obstinately and laboriously. It passed slowly out of sight, but still he heard in his ears the laborious drone of the engine reiterating the syllables of her name. He turned back the way he had come, 
the rhythm of the engine pounding in his ears. He began to doubt the reality of what memory told him. He halted under a tree and allowed the rhythm to die away. He could not feel her near him in the darkness, nor her voice touch his ear. He waited for some minutes listening. He could hear nothing. The night was perfectly silent. He listened again. Perfectly silent. He felt that he was alone. End of Story 11 A Painful Case Story 12 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ivy Day in the Committee Room Old Jack raked the cinders together with a piece of cardboard and spread them judiciously over the whitening dome of coals. When the dome was thinly covered his face lapsed into darkness, but as he set himself to fan the fire again his crouching shadow ascended the opposite wall and his face slowly re-emerged into light. It was an old man's face, very bony and hairy. The moist blue eyes blinked at the fire, and the moist mouth fell open at times, munching once or twice mechanically when it closed. When the cinders had caught he laid the piece of cardboard against the wall, sighed and said, "'That's better now, Mr. O'Connor.' Mr. O'Connor, a grey-haired young man, whose face was disfigured by many blotches and pimples, had just brought the tobacco for a cigarette into a shapely cylinder, but when spoken to he undid his handiwork meditatively. Then he began to roll the tobacco again meditatively, and after a moment's thought decided to lick the paper. "'Did Mr. Tierney say when he'd be back?' he asked in a husky falsetto. "'He didn't say.' Mr. O'Connor put a cigarette into his mouth and began searching his pockets. He took out a pack of thin pasteboard cards. "'I'll get you a match,' said the old man. "'Never mind, this'll do,' said Mr. O'Connor. He selected one of the cards and read what was printed on it. "'Municipal Elections, Royal Exchange Ward. Mr. Richard J. Tierney, PLG respectfully solicits the favour of your vote and influence at the coming election in the Royal Exchange Ward. Mr. O'Connor had been engaged by Tierney's agent to canvass one part of the ward, but as the weather was inclement and his boots led in the wet, he spent a great part of the day sitting by the fire in the committee room in Wicklow Street with Jack, the old caretaker. They had been sitting thus since the short day had grown dark. It was the 6th of October dismal and cold out of doors. Mr. O'Connor tore a strip off the card, and lighting it lit his cigarette. As he did so the flame lit up a leaf of dark glossy ivy on the lapel of his coat. The old man watched him attentively, and then, taking up the piece of cardboard again, began to fan the fire slowly while his companion smoked. "'Ah, yes,' he said, continuing. "'It's hard to know what way to bring up children. Now who'd think he'd turn out like that? I sent him to the Christian Brothers, and I done what I could for him, and there he goes, boozing about. I tried to make him some way decent." He replaced the cardboard wearily. "'Only I'm an old man now. I'd change his tune for him. I'd take the stick to his back and beat him while I could stand over him, as I'd done many a time before. The mother, you know, she cocks him up with this and that. That's what ruins children," said Mr. O'Connor. 
to be sure it is said the old man and little thanks you get for it only impudence he takes up a hand of me whenever he sees of a sup taken what's the world coming to when son speaks that way to their father what age is he said mr o'connor nineteen said the old man why don't you put him to something sure am i never done at the drunken bowsy ever since he left school i won't keep you says i you must get a job for yourself but sure it's worse whenever he gets a job he drinks it all mr o'connor shook his head in sympathy and the old man felt silent gazing into the fire someone opened the door of the room and called out hello is this a freemasons meeting who's that said the old man what are you doing in the dark asked the voice is that you hines asked mr o'connor yes what are you doing in the dark said mr hines advancing into the light of the fire he was a tall slender young man with a light brown moustache imminent little drops of rain hung at the brim of his hat and the collar of his jacket coat was turned up well matt he said to mr o'connor how goes it mr o'connor shook his head the old man left the hearth and after stumbling about the room returned with two candlesticks which he thrust one after the other into the fire and carried to the table a denuded room came into view and the fire lost all its cheerful colour the walls of the room were bare except for a copy of an election address in the middle of the room was a small table on which papers were heaped mr hines leaned against the mantelpiece and asked has he paid you yet not yet said mr o'connor i hope to god he'll not leave us in the lurch to-night mr hines laughed oh he'll pay you never fear he said i hope he looks smart about it if he means business said mr o'connor what do you think jack said mr hines satirically to the old man the old man returned to his seat by the fire saying it isn't but he has it anyway not like the other tinker what other tinker said mr hines colgan said the old man scornfully is it because colgan's a working man you say that what's the difference between a good honest bricklayer and a publican eh hasn't the working man as good a right to be in the corporation as any one else ay and a better right than those shonings that are always hat in hand before any fellow with a handle to his name isn't that so matt said mr hines addressing mr o'connor i think you're right said mr o'connor one man is a plain honest man with no hunker sliding about him he goes in to represent the labour classes this fellow you're working for only wants to get some job or other of course the working classes should be represented said the old man the working man said mr hines gets all kicks and no halfpence but its labour produces everything the working man is not looking for fat jobs for his sons and nephews and cousins the working man is not going to drag the honour of dublin in the mud to please the german monarch how's that said the old man don't you know that they want to present an address of welcome to edward rex if he comes here next year what do we want cow-towing to a foreign king our man won't vote for the address said mr o'connor he goes in on the nationalist ticket won't he said mr hines wait till you see whether he will or not i know him is it tricky dicky tierney by god perhaps you're right joe 
said Mr. O'Connor. Anyway, I wish he'd torn up with the spondulics. The three men fell silent. The old man began to rake more cinders together. Mr. Hines took off his hat, shook it, and then turned down the collar of his coat, displaying as he did so an ivy leaf in the lapel. If this man was alive, he said, pointing to the leaf, we'd have no talk of an address of welcome. That's true, said Mr. O'Connor. Musha, God be with them times, said the old man. There was some life in it then. The room was silent again. Then a bustling little man with a snuffling nose and very cold ears pushed in the door. He walked over quickly to the fire, rubbing his hands as if he intended to produce a spark from them. "'No money, boys,' he said. "'Sit down here, Mr. Henchy,' said the old man, offering him his chair. "'Oh, don't store, Jack, don't store,' said Mr. Henchy. He nodded curtly to Mr. Hines and sat down on the chair which the old man vacated. "'Did you serve Angel Street?' he asked Mr. O'Connor. "'Yes,' said Mr. O'Connor, beginning to search his pockets for memoranda. "'Did you call on Grimes?' "'I did.' "'Well?' How does he stand? He wouldn't promise. He said, I won't tell anyone what way I'm going to vote, but I think he'd be all right. Why so? He asked me who the nominators were, and I told him. I mentioned Father Bork's name. I think it'll be all right. Mr. Henchy began to snuffle and to rub his hands over the fire at a terrific speed. Then he said, For the love of God, Jack, bring us a bit of coal. There must be some left. The old man went out of the room. "'It's no go,' said Mr. Henchy, shaking his head. I asked the little shoe-boy, but he said, "'Oh, now, Mr. Henchy, when I see work going on properly, I won't forget you, you may be sure.' "'Mean little tinker! Usha, how could he be anything else?' "'What did I tell you, Matt?' said Mr. Hines. "'Tricky Dicky Tierney.' "'Oh, he's as tricky as they make him,' said Mr. Henchy. "'He hasn't got those little pig's eyes for nothing.' Blast his soul! Couldn't he pay up like a man instead of, Oh, now, Mr. Henchy, I must speak to Mr. Fanning. I've spent a lot of money. Mean little schoolboy of hell. I suppose he forgets the time his little old father kept the hand-me-down shop in Mary's Lane. But is that a fact? asked Mr. O'Connor. God, yes, said Mr. Henchy. Did you never hear that? And the men used to go in on Sunday morning before the houses were open to buy a waistcoat or a trousers. Moya! But Tricky Dicky's little old father always had a tricky little black bottle up in a corner. Do you mind now? That's that. That's where he first saw the light. The old man returned with a few lumps of coal which he placed here and there on the fire. That's a nice how do you do, said Mr. O'Connor. How does he expect us to walk for him if he won't stump up? I can't help it, said Mr. Henchy. I expect to find the bailiffs in the hall when I go home. Mr. Hines laughed, and shoving himself away from the mantelpiece with the aid of his shoulders, made ready to leave. "'It'll be all right when King Eddie comes,' he said. "'Well, boys, I'm off for the present. See you later. Bye-bye.' He went out of the room slowly. Neither Mr. Henchy nor the old man said anything, but just as the door was closing Mr. O'Connor, who had been staring moodily into the fire, called out suddenly, "'Boy, Joe!' Mr. Henchy waited a few moments and then nodded in the direction of the door. "'Tell me,' he said across the fire, "'what brings our friend in here? What does he want?' "'Usha, poor Joe,' 
said Mr. O'Connor, throwing the end of his cigarette into the fire. He's hard up like the rest of us. Mr. Henchy snuffled vigorously and spat so copiously that he nearly put out the fire, which uttered a hissing protest. To tell you my private and candid opinion, he said, I think he's a man from the other camp. He's a spy of Colgan's, if you ask me. Just go round and try to find out how they're getting on. They won't suspect you. Do you twig? Now, poor Joe's a decent skin, said Mr. O'Connor. His father was a decent, respectable man, Mr. Henchy admitted. Poor old Larry Hines. Many a good turn he did in his day. But I'm greatly afraid our friend is not nineteen carat. Damn it, I can understand a fellow being hard up, but what I can't understand is a fellow sponging. Couldn't he have some spark of manhood about him? He doesn't get a warm welcome from me when he comes, said the old man. Let him work for his own side and not come spying around here. I don't know, said Mr. O'Connor dubiously, as he took out cigarette papers and tobacco. I think Joe Hines is a straight man. He's a clever chap, too, with a pen. Do you remember that thing he wrote? Some of these hillsiders and Fenians are a bit too clever, if you ask me, said Mr. Henchy. Do you know what my private and candid opinion is about some of those little jokers? I believe half of them are in the pay of the castle. There's no knowing, said the old man. Oh, but I know it for a fact, said Mr. Henchy. They're castle hacks. I don't say Hines. No, damn it, I think he's a stroke above that. But there's a certain little nobleman with a cock eye. You know the patriot I'm alluding to. Mr. O'Connor nodded. There's a lineal descendant of Major Sophia, if you like. Oh, the heart's blood of a patriot. That's a fellow now that'd sell his country for fourpence, aye, and go down on his bended knees and thank the Almighty Christ he had a country to sell. There was a knock at the door. Come in, said Mr. Henchy. A person resembling a poor clergyman or a poor actor appeared in the doorway. His black clothes were tightly buttoned on his short body and it was impossible to say whether he wore a clergyman's collar or a layman's, because the collar of his shabby frock-coat, the uncovered buttons of which reflected the candlelight, was turned up about his neck. He wore a round hat of hard black felt. His face, shining with raindrops, had the appearance of damp yellow cheese, save where two rosy spots indicated the cheekbones. He opened his very long mouth suddenly to express disappointment and at the same time opened wide his very bright blue eyes to express pleasure and surprise. "'Oh, Father Keown,' said Mr. Henchy, jumping up from his chair. "'Is that you? Come in!' "'Oh, no, no, no,' said Father Keown quickly, pursing his lips as if he were addressing a child. "'Won't you come in and sit down?' "'No, no, no,' said Father Keown, speaking in a discreet, indulgent, velvety voice. Don't let me disturb you now. I'm just looking for Mr. Fanning. He's round at the Black Eagle, said Mr. Henchy. But won't you come in and sit down a minute? No, no, thank you. It was just a little business matter, said Father Keown. Thank you indeed. He retreated from the doorway, and Mr. Henchy, seizing one of the candlesticks, went to the door to light him downstairs. Oh, don't trouble, I beg. No, but the stairs are so dark. No, no, I can see. Thank you indeed. Are you right now? All right, thanks. Thanks. Mr. Henchy returned with the candlestick and put it on the table. He sat down again at the fire. 
There was silence for a few moments. "'Tell me, John,' said Mr. O'Connor, lighting his cigarette with another pasteboard card. Hm? "'What is he, exactly?' "'Ask me an easier one,' said Mr. Henchy. "'Fanning and himself seem to be very thick. They're often in cavernous together. Is he a priest at all?' Hm. I believe so. I think he's what you call a black sheep. We haven't many of them, thank God, but we have a few. He's an unfortunate man of some kind." "'And how does he knock it out?' asked Mr. O'Connor. "'That's another mystery. Is he attached to any chapel or church or institution or—' "'No,' said Mr. Henchy. "'I think he's travelling on his own account. God forgive me,' he added. "'I thought he was the dozen of stout.' "'Is there any chance of a drink itself?' asked Mr. O'Connor. "'I'm dry, too,' said the old man. "'I asked that little shoe-boy three times,' said Mr. Henchy, "'would he send up a dozen of stout. I asked him again now, but he was leaning on the counter in his short-sleeves, having a deep goster with Alderman Cowley.' "'Why didn't you remind him?' said Mr. O'Connor. "'Eh, I couldn't go over while he was talking to Alderman Cowley. I just waited till I caught his eye and said, about that little matter I was speaking to you about. That'll be all right, Mr. H., he said. Yada, should a little hop of me tum has forgotten all about it. There's some deal on in that quarter, said Mr. O'Connor thoughtfully. I saw the three of them hard at it yesterday at Suffolk Street Corner. I think I know the little game they're at, said Mr. Henchy. You must owe the city father's money nowadays if he want to be made Lord Mayor. Then they'll make you Lord Mayor. By God, I'm thinking seriously becoming a city father myself. What do you think? Would I do for the job?" Mr. O'Connor laughed. "'So far as Owen money goes.' "'Driving out of the mansion-house,' said Mr. Henchy, "'in all me vermin, with Jack here standing up behind me in a powdered wig, eh? And make me your private secretary, John.' "'Yes, and I'll make Father Keown me private chaplain. We'll have a family party.' "'Faith, Mr. Henchy.' said the old man. You'd keep up better style than some of them. I was talking one day to old Keegan, the porter. And how do you like your new master, Pat, says I to him. You haven't much entertaining now, says I. Entertaining, says he. He'd live on the smell of an oil rag. And you know what he told me. Now, I declare to God I didn't believe him. What? said Mr. Henchy and Mr. O'Connor. He told me, what do you think of a Lord Mayor of Dublin sending out for a pound of chops for his dinner? How's that for a high living? says he. Wish ye, wish ye, says I. A pound of chops, says he, coming into the mansion house. Wish ye, says I. What kind of people is going at all now? At this point there was a knock at the door, and a boy put in his head. What is it? said the old man. From the Black Eagle, said the boy, walking in sideways and depositing a basket on the floor with a noise of shaken bottles. The old man helped the boy to transfer the bottles from the basket to the table and counted the full tally. After the transfer the boy put his basket on his arm and asked, "'Any bottles?' "'What bottles?' said the old man. "'Won't you let us drink them first? said Mr. Henchy. "'I was told to ask for the bottles. Come back tomorrow," said the old man. Here, boy," said Mr. Henchy, will you run over to O'Farrell's and ask him to lend us a corkscrew? For Mr. Henchy, say. Tell him we won't keep it a minute. Lay the basket there. 
The boy went out, and Mr. Henchy began to rub his hands cheerfully, saying, "'Ah, well, he's not so bad after all. He's as good as his word, anyhow.' "'There's no tumblers,' said the old man. "'No, don't let that trouble you, Jack,' said Mr. Henchy. "'Manny's the good man before now drank out of the bottle.' "'Anyway, it's better than nothing,' said Mr. O'Connor. "'He's not a bad sort.' said Mr. Henchy. Only Fannin has such a loan of him. He means well, you know, in his own tin-pot way." The boy came back with the corkscrew. The old man opened three bottles, and was handing back the corkscrew when Mr. Henchy said to the boy, "'Would you like a drink, boy?' "'If you please, sir,' said the boy. The old man opened another bottle grudgingly, and handed it to the boy. "'What age are you?' he asked. Seventeen said the boy. As the old man said nothing further, the boy took the bottle and said, "'Here's my best respect, sir,' to Mr. Henchy, drank the contents, put the bottle back on the table, and wiped his mouth with his sleeve. Then he took up the corkscrew and went out of the door sideways, muttering some sort of salutation. "'That's the way it begins,' said the old man. "'The tin end of the wedge,' said Mr. Henchy. The old man distributed the three bottles which he had opened, and the men drank from them simultaneously. After having drunk, each placed his bottle on the mantelpiece within hand's reach, and drew in a long breath of satisfaction. "'Well, I did a good day's work today,' said Mr. Henchy after a pause. "'That's so, John.' "'Yes. I got him one or two sure things in Dawson Street, Crofton and myself. Between ourselves, you know, Crofton. He's a decent chap, of course, but he's not worth a damn as a canvasser. He hasn't a word to throw to a dog. He stands and looks at the people while I do the talking." Here two men entered the room. One of them was a very fat man whose blue serge clothes seemed to be in danger of falling from his sloping figure. He had a big face which resembled a young ox's face in expression, staring blue eyes and a grizzled moustache. The other man, who was much younger and frailer, had a thin, clean-shaven face. He wore a very high double collar and a wide-brimmed bowler hat. "'Hello, Crofton,' said Mr. Henchy to the fat man. "'Talk of the devil!' "'Where did the booze come from?' asked the young man. "'Did the cow calve?' "'Oh, of course. Lion spots the drink's worst thing,' said Mr. O'Connor, laughing. "'Is that the way you chaps canvass?' said Mr. Lyons. "'And Crofton and I out in the cold and rain looking for votes.' "'Why, blast your soul!' said Mr. Henchy. "'I'd get more votes in five minutes than you two would get in a week.' "'Open two bottles of stout, Jack,' said Mr. O'Connor. Uh, "'How can I?' said the old man, "'when there is no corkscrew.' "'Wait now, wait now,' said Mr. Henchy, getting up quickly. "'Did you ever see this little trick?' He took two bottles from the table, and carrying them to the fire put them on the hob. Then he sat down again by the fire and took another drink from his bottle. Mr. Lyons sat on the edge of the table, pushed his hat towards the nape of his neck and began to swing his legs. "'Which is my bottle?' he asked. "'This lad,' said Mr. Henchy. Mr. Crofton sat down on a box and looked fixedly at the other bottle on the hob. He was silent for two reasons. The first reason, sufficient in itself, was that he had nothing to say. The second reason was that he considered his companions beneath him. He had been a canvasser for Wilkins the Conservative, 
but when the conservatives had withdrawn their man and choosing the lesser of two evils given their support to the nationalist candidate he had been engaged to work for mr tierney in a few minutes an apologetic was heard as the cork flew out of mr lyons's bottle mr lyons jumped off the table went to the fire took his bottle and carried it back to the table i was just telling them crofton said mr henchy that we got a good few votes to-day who did you get asked mr lyons well i got parks for one and i got atkinson for two and got ward off dawson street he's a fine old chap he is too regular old tough old conservative but isn't your candidate a nationalist said he he's a respectable man said i he's in favour of whatever will benefit his country he's a big ratepayer i said he has extensive house property in the city and three places of business and isn't it to his own advantage to keep down the rates he's a prominent and respected citizen said i and a poor law guardian and he doesn't belong to any party good bad or indifferent that's the way to talk to them and what about the address to the king said mr lyons after drinking and smacking his lips listen to me said mr henchy what we want in this country as i said to old ward is capital the king's coming here will mean an influx of money into this country the citizens of dublin will benefit by it look at all the factories down by the quays there idle look at all the money there is in the country if only we work the old industries the mills the shipbuilding yards and factories it's capital we want but look here john said mr o'connor why should we welcome the king of england didn't parnell himself parnell said mr henchy is dead now here's the way i look at it here's this chap come to the throne after his old mother keeping him out of it till the man was grey he's a man of the world and he means well by us he's a jolly fine decent fellow if you ask me and no damn nonsense about him he just says to himself the old one never went to see these wild irish by christ i'll go myself and see what they're like and are we going to insult a man when he comes over here on a friendly visit eh isn't that right crofton mr crofton nodded his head but after all now said mr lyons argumentatively king edward's life you know is not the very let bygones be bygones said mr henchy i admire the man personally he's just an ordinary knockabout like you and me he's fond of his glass of grog and he's a bit of a rake perhaps and he's a good sportsman damn it can't we irish play fair that's all very fine said mr lyons but look at the case of parnell now in the name of god said mr henchy where's the analogy between the two cases what i mean said mr lyons is we have our ideals why now would we welcome a man like that do you think now after what he did parnell was a fit man to lead us and why then would we do it for edward the seventh this is parnell's anniversary said mr o'connor and don't let us store up any bad blood we all respect him now that he's dead and gone even the conservatives he added turning to mr crofton the tardy cork flew out of mr crofton's bottle Mr. Crofton got up from his box and went to the fire. As he returned with his capture, he said in a deep voice, "'Our side of the house respects him because he was a gentleman.' "'Right you are, Crofton,' said Mr. Henchy fiercely. "'He was the only man that could keep that bag of cats in order. Down, ye dogs! Lie down, ye curs! That's the way he treated them. Come in, Joe, come in!' he called out, catching sight of Mr. Hines in the doorway. 
Mr. Hines came in slowly. "'Open another bottle of stout, Jack,' said Mr. Henchy. "'Oh, I forgot there's no corkscrew. Here, show me one here and I'll put it at the fire.' The old man handed him another bottle, and he placed it on the hob. "'Sit down, Joe,' said Mr. O'Connor. "'We're just talking about the chief.' "'Aye, aye,' said Mr. Henchy. Mr. Hines sat on the side of the table near Mr. Lyons, but said nothing. "'There's one of them, anyhow,' said Mr. Henchy, "'that didn't renege him. By God, I'll say that for you, Joe. No, by God, you stuck to him like a man.' "'Oh, Joe,' said Mr. O'Connor suddenly, "'give us that thing you wrote. Do you remember? Have you got it on you?' "'Oh, aye,' said Mr. Henchy. "'Give us that. Did you ever hear that, Crofton? Listen to this now. Splendid thing.' "'Go on.' said Mr. O'Connor. Fire away, Joe. Mr. Hines did not seem to remember at once the piece to which they were alluding, but after reflecting a while he said, Oh, that thing is it. Sure that's old now. Out with it, man, said Mr. O'Connor. Shush, shush, said Mr. Henchy. Now, Joe. Mr. Hines hesitated a little longer. Then, amid the silence, he took off his hat, laid it on the table, and stood up. He seemed to be rehearsing the piece in his mind. After a rather long pause he announced, The Death of Parnell, 6th of October, 1891. He cleared his throat once or twice, and then began to recite, He is dead, our uncrowned king is dead, O Aaron, mourn with grief and woe, For he lies dead, whom the fell gang of modern hypocrites laid low. He lies slain by the coward hounds, he raised to glory from the mire, and Aaron's hopes and Aaron's dreams perish upon her monarch's pyre. In palace, cabin, or in cot, the Irish heart, where'er it be, is bowed with woe, for he is gone, who would have wrought her destiny. He would have had his Aaron famed, the green flag gloriously unfurled, her statesmen, bards, and warriors raised, before the nations of the world. He dreamed, alas, t'was but a dream, of liberty, but as he strove, to clutch that idol, treachery, sundered him from the thing he loved. Shame on the coward, of hands, that smote their lord, or with a kiss, betrayed him to the rabble-rout, of fawning priests no friends of his. May everlasting shame consume the memory of those who tried, to be foul and smear the exalted name of one who spurned them in his pride. He fell as fall the mighty ones, nobly undaunted to the last, and death has now united him with Aaron's heroes of the past. No sound of strife disturb his sleep, calmly he rests, no human pain or high ambition spurns him now, the peaks of glory to attain. They had their way, they laid him low, but Aaron, list his spirit may, rise like the phoenix from the flames, when breaks the dawning of the day, the day that brings us freedom's reign, and on that day may Erin well pledge in the cup she lifts to joy one grief, the memory of Parnell. Mr. Hines sat down again on the table. When he had finished his recitation there was a silence, and then a burst of clapping. Even Mr. Lyons clapped. The applause continued for a little time. When it had ceased, all the auditors drank from their bottles in silence. The cork flew out of Mr. Hines's bottle, but Mr. Hines remained sitting, flushed and bareheaded on the table. He did not seem to have heard the invitation. 
good man, Joe," said Mr. O'Connor, taking out his cigarette papers and pouch the better to hide his emotion. "What do you think of that, Crofton?" cried Mr. Henchy. "Isn't that fine? What?" Mr. Crofton said that it was a very fine piece of writing. End of story twelve. Ivy Day in the committee room. Story thirteen of Dubliners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A mother. Mr. Hollihan, assistant secretary of the Era Abu Society, had been walking up and down Dublin for nearly a month, with his hands and pockets full of dirty pieces of paper, arranging about the series of concerts. He had a gammy leg, and for this his friends called him Hoppy Hollihan. He walked up and down constantly stood by the hour at street corners arguing the point and made notes. But in the end it was Mrs. Kearney who arranged everything. Miss Devlin had become Mrs. Kearney out of spite. She had been educated in a high-class convent, where she had learned French and music. As she was naturally pale and unbending in manner, she made few friends at school. When she came to the age of marriage she was sent out to many houses, where her playing and ivory manners were much admired. She sat amid the chilly circle of her accomplishments, waiting for some suitor to brave it and offer her a brilliant life. But the young men whom she met were ordinary and she gave them no encouragement, trying to console her romantic desires by eating a great deal of Turkish delight in secret. However, when she drew near the limit and her friends began to loosen their tongues about her, she silenced them by marrying Mr. Kearney, who was a bootmaker on Ormond Quay. He was much older than she. His conversation, which was serious, took place at intervals in his great brown beard. After the first year of married life Mrs. Kearney perceived that such a man would wear better than a romantic person, but she never put her own romantic ideas away. He was sober, thrifty, and pious. He went to the altar every first Friday, sometimes with her, oftener by himself, but she never weakened in her religion and was a good wife to him. At some party in a strange house, when she lifted her eyebrow ever so slightly, he stood up to take his leave, and when his cough troubled him she put the eider-down quilt over his feet and made a strong rum punch. For his part he was a model father. By paying a small sum every week into a society he insured for both his daughters a dowry of one hundred pounds each when they came to the age of twenty-four. He sent the older daughter, Kathleen, to a good convent where she learned French and music, and afterward paid her fees at the academy. Every year in the month of July Mrs. Kearney found occasion to say to some friend, "'My good man is packing us off to Skerries for a few weeks.' If it was not Skerries it was Hoth or Greystones. When the Irish revival began to be appreciable Mrs. Kearney determined to take advantage of her daughter's name, and brought an Irish teacher to the house. Kathleen and her sister sent Irish picture postcards to their friends, and these friends sent back other Irish picture postcards. On special Sundays, when Mr. Kearney went with his family to the pro-cathedral, a little crowd of people would assemble after Mass at the corner of Cathedral Street. They were all friends of the Kearneys, musical friends or nationalist friends, and when they had played every little counter of gossip they shook hands with one another all together laughing at the crossing of so many hands, and said good-bye to one another in Irish. Soon the name of Miss Catherine Kearney began to be heard often on people's lips, 
People said that she was very clever at music and a very nice girl, and moreover that she was a believer in the language movement. Mrs. Kearney was well content at this. Therefore she was not surprised when one day Mr. Holland came to her and proposed that her daughter should be the accompanist at a series of four grand concerts which his society was going to give in the ancient concert rooms. She brought him into the drawing-room, made him sit down, and brought out the decanter and the silver biscuit-barrel. She entered heart and soul into the details of the enterprise, advised and dissuaded, and finally a contract was drawn up by which Kathleen was to receive eight guineas for her services as accompanist at the four grand concerts. As Mr. Holohan was a novice in such delicate matters as the wording of bills and the disposing of items for a programme, Mrs. Kearney helped him. She had tact. She knew what artistes should go into capitals and what artistes should go into small type. She knew that the first tenor would not like to come on after Mr. Mead's comic turn. To keep the audience continually diverted she slipped the doubtful items in between the old favourites. Mr. Holohan called to see her every day and to have her advice on some point. She was invariably friendly and advising. Homely, in fact. She pushed the decanter towards him, saying, "'Now, help yourself, Mr. Holohan.' And while he was helping himself, she said, "'Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of it.' Everything went on smoothly. Mrs. Kearney bought some lovely blush-pink charmousse in brown thomases to let into the front of Catherine's dress. It cost a pretty penny but there are occasions when a little expense is justifiable. She took a dozen of two-shilling tickets for the final concert and sent them to those friends who could not be trusted to come otherwise. She forgot nothing, and, thanks to her, everything that was to be done was done. The concerts were to be on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. When Mrs. Kearney arrived with her daughter at the ancient concert rooms on Wednesday night she did not like the look of things. A few young men, wearing bright blue badges in their coats, stood idle in the vestibule. None of them wore evening dress. She passed by with her daughter, and a quick glance through the open door of the hall shouldered the cause of the steward's idleness. At first she wondered had she mistaken the hour. No, it was twenty minutes to eight. In the dressing-room behind the stage she was introduced to the secretary of the society, Mr. Fitzpatrick. She smiled and shook his hand. He was a little man with a white vacant face. She noticed that he wore his soft brown hat carelessly on the side of his head, and that his accent was flat. He held a programme in his hand, and while he was talking to her he chewed one end of it into a moist pulp. He seemed to bear disappointments lightly. Mr. Holland came into the dressing-room every few minutes with reports from the box-office. The artistes talked among themselves nervously, glanced from time to time at the mirror and rolled and unrolled their music. When it was nearly half-past eight the few people in the hall began to express their desire to be entertained. Mr. Fitzpatrick came in, smiled vacantly at the room, and said, "'Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, I suppose we'd better open the ball.' Mrs. Kearney rewarded his very flat final syllable with a quick stare of contempt, and then said to her daughter encouragingly, "'Are you ready, dear?' When she had an opportunity she called Mr. Holohan aside and asked him to tell her what it meant. Mr. Holohan did not know what it meant. He said that the committee had made a mistake in arranging for four concerts. Four was too many. "'And the artistes,' said Mrs. Kearney, "'of course they are doing their best, but really they are not good.' 
Mr. Holohan admitted that the artistes were no good, but the committee, he said, had decided to let the first three concerts go as they pleased and reserve all the talent for Saturday night. Mrs. Kearney said nothing, but as the mediocre items followed one another on the platform and the few people in the hall grew fewer and fewer, she began to regret that she had put herself to any expense for such a concert. There was something she didn't like in the look of things, and Mr. Fitzpatrick's vacant smile irritated her very much. However, she said nothing and waited to see how it would end. The concert expired shortly before ten and everyone went home quickly. The concert on Thursday night was better attended, but Mrs. Kearney saw at once that the house was filled with paper. The audience behaved indecorously, as if the concert were an informal dress rehearsal. Mr. Fitzpatrick seemed to enjoy himself. He was quite unconscious that Mrs. Kearney was taking angry note of his conduct. He stood at the edge of the screen, from time to time jutting out his head and exchanging a laugh with two friends in the corner of the balcony. In the course of the evening Mrs. Kearney learned that the Friday concert was to be abandoned and that the committee was going to move heaven and earth to secure a bumper house on Saturday night. When she heard this she sought out Mr. Holland. She buttonholed him as he was limping out quickly with a glass of lemonade for a young lady and asked him was it true. Yes, it was true. But of course that doesn't alter the contract, she said. The contract was for four concerts. Mr. Holohan seemed to be in a hurry. He advised her to speak to Mr. Fitzpatrick. Mrs. Kearney was now beginning to be alarmed. She called Mr. Fitzpatrick away from his screen and told him that her daughter had signed for four concerts and that, of course, according to the terms of the contract, she should receive the sum originally stipulated for, whether the society gave the four concerts or not. Mr. Fitzpatrick, who did not catch the point at issue very quickly, seemed unable to resolve the difficulty and said that he would bring the matter before the committee. Mrs. Kearney's anger began to flutter in her cheek and she had all she could do to keep from asking. And who is the comedy, pray? But she knew that it would not be ladylike to do that, so she was silent. Little boys were sent out into the principal streets of Dublin early on Friday morning with bundles of handbills. Special puffs appeared in all the evening papers, reminding the music-loving public of the treat which was in store for it on the following evening. Mrs. Kearney was somewhat reassured, but she thought well to tell her husband of her suspicions. He listened carefully and said that perhaps it would be better if he went with her on Saturday night. She agreed. She respected her husband in the same way as she respected the general post office, as something large, secure and fixed, and though she knew the small number of his talents she appreciated his abstract value as a male. She was glad that he had suggested coming with her. She thought her plans over. The night of the grand concert came. Mrs. Kearney, with her husband and daughter, arrived at the ancient concert-rooms three-quarters of an hour before the time at which the concert was to begin. By ill luck it was a rainy evening. Mrs. Kearney placed her daughter's clothes and music in charge of her husband and went all over the building looking for Mr. Holohan or Mr. Fitzpatrick. She could find neither. She asked the stewards was any member of the committee in the hall, and after a great deal of trouble a steward brought out a little woman named Miss Byrne to whom Mrs. Kearney explained that she wanted to see one of the secretaries. Miss Byrne expected them any minute and asked could she do anything. Mrs. Kearney looked searchingly at the oldish face which was screwed into an expression of trustfulness and enthusiasm and answered, No, thank you. The little woman hoped they would have a good house. 
she looked out at the rain until the melancholy of the wet street effaced all the trustfulness and enthusiasm from her twisted features. Then she gave a little sigh and said, "'Ah, oh, well, we did our best, the dear knows.' Mrs. Kearney had to go back to the dressing-room. The artistes were arriving. The bass and the second tenor had already come. The bass, Mr. Duggan, was a slender young man with a scattered black moustache. He was the son of a hall-porter in an office in the city, and as a boy he had sung prolonged bass notes in the resounding hall. From this humble state he had raised himself until he had become a first-rate artiste. He had appeared in grand opera. One night, when an operatic artiste had fallen ill, he had undertaken the part of the king in the opera of Maritana at the Queen's Theatre. He sang his music with great feeling and volume and was warmly welcomed by the gallery, but unfortunately he marred the good impression by wiping his nose in his gloved hand once or twice out of thoughtlessness. He was unassuming and spoke little. He said, use, so softly that it passed unnoticed, and he never drank anything stronger than milk for his voice's sake. Mr. Bell, the second tenor, was a fair-haired little man who competed every year for prizes at the Fesh Kyol. On his fourth trial he had been awarded a bronze medal. He was extremely nervous and extremely jealous of other tenors, and he covered his nervous jealousy with an ebullient friendliness. It was his humour to have people know what an ordeal a concert was to him. Therefore when he saw Mr. Duggan he went over to him and asked, "'Are you in it too?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Duggan. Mr. Bell laughed at his fellow-sufferer, held out his hand, and said, "Shake." Mrs. Kearney passed by these two young men and went to the edge of the screen to view the house. The seats were being filled up rapidly, and a pleasant noise circulated in the auditorium. She came back and spoke to her husband privately. Their conversation was evidently about Kathleen, for they both glanced at her often as she stood chatting to one of her nationalist friends, Miss Healy the Contralto. An unknown solitary woman with a pale face walked through the room. The woman followed with keen eyes the faded blue dress which was stretched upon a meagre body. Someone said that she was Madame Glynn, the soprano. "'I wonder where did they dig her up?' said Kathleen to Miss Healy. "'I'm sure I never heard of her.' Miss Healy had to smile. Mr. Hollihan limped into the dressing-room at that moment, and the two young ladies asked him who was the unknown woman. Mr. Hollihan said that she was Madame Glynn, from London. Madame Glynn took her stand in a corner of the room, holding a roll of music stiffly before her, and from time to time changing the direction of her startled gaze. The shadow took her faded dress into shelter, but fell revengefully into the little cup behind her collarbone. The noise of the hall became more audible. The first tenor and the baritone arrived together. They were both well-dressed, stout and complacent, and they brought a breath of opulence among the company. Mrs. Kearney brought her daughter over to them and talked to them amiably. She wanted to be on good terms with them, but while she strove to be polite her eyes followed Mr. Hollihan in his limping and devious courses. As soon as she could she excused herself and went out after him. "'Mr. Hollihan, I want to speak to you for a moment,' she said. They went down to a discreet part of the corridor. Mrs. Kearney asked him when was her daughter going to be paid. Mr. Holland said that Mr. Fitzpatrick had charge of that. Mrs. Kearney said that she didn't know anything about Mr. Fitzpatrick. Her daughter had signed a contract for eight guineas and she would have to be paid. Mr. Holland said that it wasn't his business. "'Why isn't it your business?' 
asked Mrs. Kearney. Didn't you yourself bring her the contract? Anyway, if it's not your business, it's my business, and I mean to see to it." "'You'd better speak to Mr. Fitzpatrick,' said Mr. Holland distantly. "'I don't know anything about Mr. Fitzpatrick,' repeated Mrs. Kearney. "'I have a contract, and I intend to see that it is carried out.' When she came back to the dressing-room her cheeks were slightly suffused. The room was lively. Two men in outdoor dress had taken possession of the fireplace and were chatting familiarly with Miss Healy and the baritone. They were the Freeman man and Mr. O'Madden Burke. The Freeman man had come in to say that he could not wait for the concert, as he had to report the lecture which an American priest was giving in the mansion-house. He said they were to leave the report for him at the Freeman office, and he would see that it went in. He was a grey-haired man, with a plausible voice and careful manners. He held an extinguished cigar in his hand and the aroma of cigar-smoke floated near him. He had not intended to stay a moment because concerts and artistes bored him considerably, but he remained leaning against the mantelpiece. Miss Healy stood in front of him, talking and laughing. He was old enough to suspect one reason for her politeness, but young enough in spirit to turn the moment to account. The warmth, fragrance and colour of her body appealed to his senses. He was pleasantly conscious that the bosom which he saw rise and fall slowly beneath him rose and fell at that moment for him, that the laughter and fragrance and willful glances were his tribute. When he could stay no longer he took leave of her regretfully. "'Mr. O'Madden Burke will write the notice,' he explained to Mr. Holohan, "'and I'll see it in.' "'Thank you very much, Mr. Hendrick,' said Mr. Holohan. "'You'll see it in, I know. Now won't you have a little something before you go?' "'I don't mind.' said Mr. Hendrick. The two men went along some tortuous passages, and up a dark staircase, and came to a secluded room where one of the stewards was uncorking bottles for a few gentlemen. One of these gentlemen was Mr. O'Madden Burke, who had found out the room by instinct. He was a suave elderly man who balanced his imposing body, when at rest, upon a large silk umbrella. His magniloquent western name was the moral umbrella upon which he balanced the fine problem of his finances. He was widely respected. While Mr. Holohan was entertaining the Freeman man, Mrs. Kearney was speaking so animatedly to her husband that he had to ask her to lower her voice. The conversation of the others in the dressing-room had become strained. Mr. Bell, the first item, stood ready with his music, but the accompanist made no sign. Evidently something was wrong. Mr. Kearney looked straight before him, stroking his beard, while Mrs. Kearney spoke into Catherine's ear with subdued emphasis. From the hall came sounds of encouragement, clapping and stamping of feet. The first tenor and the baritone and Miss Healy stood together, waiting tranquilly, but Mr. Bell's nerves were greatly agitated, because he was afraid the audience would think that he had come late. Mr. Holland and Mr. O'Madden Burke came into the room. In a moment Mr. Holland perceives a hush. He went over to Mrs. Kearney and spoke with her earnestly. While they were speaking the noise in the hall grew louder. Mr. Holland became very red and excited. He spoke volubly, but Mrs. Kearney said curtly at intervals, "'She won't go on. She must get her eight guineas.' Mr. Holland pointed desperately towards the hall where the audience was clapping and stamping. He appealed to Mr. Kearney and to Kathleen. But Mr. Kearney continued to stroke his beard, and Kathleen looked down, moving the point of her new shoe. It was not her fault. Mrs. Kearney repeated, "'She won't go on without her money.' 
After a swift struggle of tongues Mr. Holland hobbled out in haste. The room was silent. When the strain of the silence had become somewhat painful Miss Healy said to the baritone, "'Have you seen Mrs. Pat Campbell this week?' The baritone had not seen her, but he had been told that she was very fine. The conversation went no further. The first tenor bent his head and began to count the links of the gold chain which was extended across his waist, smiling and humming random notes to observe the effect on the frontal sinus. From time to time everyone glanced at Mrs. Kearney. The noise in the auditorium had risen to a clamour when Mr. Fitzpatrick burst into the room, followed by Mr. Holohan, who was panting. The clapping and stamping in the hall were punctuated by whistling. Mr. Fitzpatrick held a few banknotes in his hand. He counted out four into Mrs. Kearney's hand and said she would get the other half at the interval. Mrs. Kearney said, "'This is four shillings short.' But Catherine gathered in her skirt and said, "'Now, Mr. Bell,' to the first item, who was shaking like an aspen. The singer and the accompanist went out together. The noise in the hall died away. There was a pause of a few seconds, and then the piano was heard. The first part of the concert was very successful, except for Madame Glynn's item. The poor lady sang Killarney in a bodiless, gasping voice, with all the old-fashioned mannerisms of intonation and pronunciation which she believed lent elegance to her singing. She looked as if she had been resurrected from an old stage wardrobe, and the cheaper parts of the hall made fun of her high wailing notes. The first tenor and the contralto, however, brought down the house. Kathleen played a selection of Irish airs which was generously applauded. The first part closed with a stirring patriotic recitation delivered by a young lady who arranged amateur theatricals. It was deservedly applauded, and when it was ended the men went out for the interval, content. All this time the dressing-room was a hive of excitement. In one corner were Mr. Holland, Mr. Fitzpatrick, Miss Byrne, two of the stewards, the baritone, the bass, and Mr. O'Madden Burke. Mr. O'Madden Burke said it was the most scandalous exhibition he had ever witnessed. Miss Catherine Kearney's musical career was ended in Dublin after that, he said. The baritone was asked what did he think of Mrs. Kearney's conduct. He did not like to say anything. He had been paid his money and wished to be at peace with men. However, he said that Mrs. Kearney might have taken the artistes into consideration. The stewards and the secretaries debated hotly as to what should be done when the interval came. "'I agree with Miss Byrne,' said Mr. O'Madden Burke. "'Pay her nothing.' In another corner of the room were Mrs. Kearney and her husband, Mr. Bell, Miss Healy, and the young lady who had to recite the patriotic piece. Mrs. Kearney said that the committee had treated her scandalously. She had spared neither trouble nor expense, and this was how she was repaid. They thought they had only a girl to deal with and that therefore they could ride roughshod over her. But she would show them their mistake. They wouldn't have dared to have treated her like that if she had been a man. But she would see that her daughter got her rights. She wouldn't be fooled. If they didn't pay her to the last farthing she would make Dublin ring. Of course she was sorry for the sake of the artistes. But what else could she do? She appealed to the second tenor, who said he thought she had not been well treated. Then she appealed to Miss Healy. Miss Healy wanted to join the other group but she did not like to do so because she was a great friend of Kathleen's, and the Kearneys had often invited her to their house. As soon as the first part was ended Mr. Fitzpatrick and Mr. Holohan went over to Mrs. Kearney 
and told her that the other four guineas would be paid after the committee meeting on the following Tuesday, and that, in case her daughter did not play for the second part, the committee would consider the contract broken and would pay nothing. "'I haven't seen any committee,' said Mrs. Kearney angrily. "'My daughter has her contract. She will get four pounds eight into her hand, or a foot she won't put on that platform.' "'I'm surprised at you, Mrs. Kearney," said Mr. Holohan. "'I never thought you would treat us this way.' "'And what way did you treat me?' asked Mrs. Kearney. Her face was inundated with an angry colour, and she looked as if she would attack someone with her hands. "'I'm asking for my rights,' she said. "'You might have some sense of decency,' said Mr. Hollan. "'Might I, indeed? And when I ask when my daughter is going to be paid I can't get a civil answer.' She tossed her head and assumed a haughty voice. "'You must speak to the secretary. It's not my business. I'm a great fellow, fall the diddle I do.' "'I thought you were a lady.' said Mr. Holland, walking away from her abruptly. After that Mrs. Kearney's conduct was condemned on all hands. Everyone approved of what the committee had done. She stood at the door, haggard with rage, arguing with her husband and daughter, gesticulating with them. She waited until it was time for the second part to begin, in the hope that the secretaries would approach her. But Miss Healy had kindly consented to play one or two accompaniments. Mrs. Kearney had to stand aside to allow the baritone and his accompanist to pass up to the platform. She stood still for an instant, like an angry stone image, and, when the first notes of the song struck her ear, she caught up her daughter's cloak and said to her husband, "'Get a cab!' He went out at once. Mrs. Kearney wrapped the cloak round her daughter and followed him. As she passed through the doorway she stopped and glared into Mr. Holland's face. "'I'm not done with you yet,' she said. But I'm done with you," said Mr. Holland. Kathleen followed her mother meekly. Mr. Holland began to pace up and down the room, in order to cool himself, for he felt his skin on fire. "'That's a nice lady,' he said. "'Oh, she's a nice lady!' "'You did the proper thing, Holland,' said Mr. O'Madden Burke, poised upon his umbrella in approval. End of Story 13 A Mother Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.